G'day people, uh, looking forward to diving into that in a moment, but some encouraging news for you first just in regards to our giving. We brought news to you over June about a significant gap that we had. Uh, well, be encouraged that we've picked up that gap, or we've, we've made improvement by over $100,000 um, to close that gap. We can afford new microphones. <laughs> good. So that we are now $65,000 behind budget, uh, which compared to where we were, which was another 100 more than that, is very encouraging news. So how good's that? Uh, let's pray and dive into this word. Uh, well, Father, we do thank you for all the good things that come from your hand, including your provision. Uh, we do thank you for that news of providing for the gospel needs here to see more and more people on the coast, the country and beyond hear the news of Jesus, the only news that will matter into eternity. Uh, we rejoice to see that news bearing fruit among us, to see generations growing up in the Lord. And so we do thank you for moving uh, the hearts of us to give generously and ask that you would keep providing all that we need. We ask that you might give us what we need right now, uh, ears and hearts and minds that are ready and soft and attentive to your voice, uh, that we might understand it rightly and respond in a way that is good, fitting and glorifying to the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, a new series and uh, there is usually a sense of anticipation as we dive into a new book of the Bible and I'm particularly picking that up as we launch into Genesis. Uh, lots of anticipation, and it is an amazing book. It's not often that we get to really slow down and consider the very first words on the first pages of the Bible, which actually set up every page that comes in the Bible. It is so foundational, it bears on so many significant issues, and it raises some really massive questions. Just not necessarily the big questions that we bring to it. I don't know if you've uh, noticed this around you. I have, as, as kind of word got out that we were heading towards Genesis in a couple of weeks. As people have been talking around the place, the dominant theme has been science, creation. What's the relationship? How old is the earth? What's the mechanism by which it was made? Where are the dinosaurs? And so on has been the topic but if we let this issue dominate, we'll actually miss what Genesis wants to say to us. It'd be a little bit like me really wanting to tell you about the show that I took Bree, my wife, to see last week for her birthday, uh, to go see her favourite band. We jumped in the car, we head down, we, we got a quick bite to eat before the show, and, but you interrupt at this point and you go, did you take the toll road down the North Connects or the free but slower Pacific Highway? It doesn't matter. And I just want to tell you about the show. And oh, What drink did you have when you had dinner? It doesn't matter. I just want to tell you about the show. We, we went in, we grabbed our seats and the bank. What seat number did you have? It doesn't matter. That's not the point. I want to tell you about the show. We can do the same in coming to Genesis. We can bring questions that only interrupt the big points that it wants to make. 
And I want to suggest that the questions about the age of the earth, the mechanism, dinosaurs and so on, are not the big questions on view. But rather, massive, you can't get bigger questions. Like, where have we come from? Who are we? Why are we here? How are we to live? And what's the point? Where's it all going? What's the future hold? Questions and answers that deal with matters of origins and identity and purpose and ethics and the future. Now, that's not to say that the other questions about creation and science and the age of the earth and so on are unimportant. Not at all. And I know for some of you, they're actually very significant issues and possibly even blocking faith in the God of the Bible or rattling it, maybe. And so uh, I'll, I'll let you know that in a few weeks' time, we will be running a night to deal with just these issues. Okay, so it is coming. Uh, bring your questions. Uh, I've got lots to say. We've got lots to say. Herdy's back. I've just noticed him. We're going to throw him uh, the microphone and he can answer all your tricky questions about dinosaurs and... There's lots to say. So in what you hear me say this morning or don't say, please don't assume too much. Uh, Come along, we can wrestle with those questions there. You'll hear more details coming. My plan this morning is to focus on five of the big things that fall out of the text as we look at it. Five big things that are quite obvious, but not at all ordinary. So let's dive right in. Let's do it. Number one, the big thing on view is the creator. Verse 1, in the beginning, God. Immediately, we're introduced to the main character of the whole Bible, God. And we find that this God is the eternal God. In the beginning, God was already there. It's quite a common question for kids and actually some adults if they're brave enough to ask, who made God? You've heard that one. Maybe you've wondered that one. No one and nothing made God. God didn't need to be made because he was always there. This taps into such a huge, profound truth about God and everything else. God is creator. He exists in a completely different category of reality as the eternal one. Everything else, created. God exists in an eternal and self-sustaining way. Everything else exists because it was given a start. It was given an intentional start, which draws out one of the big points that this chapter is wanting to make, that God is a who, not a what. God is a who, not a what, he is personal, not a thing or a force. 35 times God is mentioned in this chapter as the subject, the actor, the the one doing, who, we read, creates, makes, sets, speaks, sees, calls, separates, blesses. And they're just the explicit actual words used of God that cause us to picture the God who imagines and plans, who measures and engineers and builds and plants and sculpts, the God who commands, the God who delights. This God is personal. Now we hear that and go, yeah, of course. 
but that's because we stand at the end of a 3,500-year Judeo-Christian heritage. This is not the view of God or the beginnings or cosmologies in other cultures, such as the Chinese understanding of the world. The Chinese understanding is that it came to be as the, the, the universe creates itself into the cycle of yin and yang, which are opposite but interconnected forces. Then you've got the whole Star Wars thing and the force. God is not a force. God is not an idea. Make no mistake, though, this personal God is powerful in the ultimate sense of power because God creates by divine fiat. We see this in the rhythm and pattern to the unfolding days of creation. And they're helpfully drawn out in most of our Bibles where you see verse 3, and God said, uh, he goes on to command something to be made. We read, and it was so, God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning. There's this rhythm, there's this pattern. And so what's the account? Pictures God like an engineer, like a builder, like a gardener. He's actually more like a boss. Because powerful people achieve things by their words. There was an illustration of this during the week for me out my office window, which is just up there in the building on the top block. You may have noticed we're doing some building works as we convert the COVID clinic into a ministry centre. And it's just been so good to see so many of you donate time and materials and, and, and um, machines, and, and it's just going up so well. But I saw this um, illustration where it was very obvious who was the builder and who was the apprentices. Right? The builder, and he was here at 8.30, and I think he's all right, but the builder didn't even have a tool belt on. Right? He didn't need one. Why? Because it was the power of his word to the workers that raised the deck. Who built the deck? Well, the workers did. Who built the deck? The boss by his word. Powerful people create by their word. The Lord God, Hebrews chapter 11, tells us, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Think about that. The universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. The power of this God is earth-shattering because it's the power of that word that created the earth. He speaks and it was so. Here is an eternal, personal, powerful God And the big implication implication here is this powerful creator, he is the one and only sovereign ruler over it all. Psalm 50 puts it this way. The, The Lord God says, Every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. And it shouldn't take much thinking to realise it's more than just cows, birds and insects that belong to God. You do. I do. Everything that you call yours belongs to God. 
He is the creator and the owner and the ruler over all things. And so he is free to do with it as he pleases. To give and to take away. The opening words of the Bible of this chapter intend to show us the eternal, personal, powerful creator, sustainer and ruler over all things to tremble before him, to be humbled before him, to behold him and to marvel at him. This follows in the second big point that falls out, which is the wonder of creation. See, there's actually a message. This is brilliant writing. There's actually a message in the medium. There's a message in the way that this text is put together that would show us something of the wonder of the creation and therefore the wonder of the creator. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Formless, empty, dark, watery. It's a picture of chaos where there is nothing defined or determined. Then, over a series of six days, God proceeds to bring order out of chaos to form and fill his world. You see it, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now you might wonder, like my kids around the dinner table did this week, hang on, how can there be light on day one? He hasn't created the sun yet. Good question. Shows that we're actually looking at the text. Now I don't think you can point to this as a knockdown argument that this is not a chronological account. After all, God is God. And he can create light apart from the sun if that's what he chooses to do. One of our youngest kids says, hey, I've got a a kid's Bible story that has something about God being the light. Yes, we turn to Revelation 22, the last page of the Bible. There is light without the sun. Of course God can create light without the sun. What I think we do want to take notice of, though, is the pattern of forming and filling which has been hinted at there in verse 1. It's formless and empty. But then, in the unfolding days, and if we put it in this table, we can kind of see something of the message in the medium. On day 1, God creates light, separates out from darkness. On day 4, he creates the sun, the moon, the stars, defines day and night. Day 2, it's the environment of the sky separated from the waters that's created. And day five, it is filled with the birds and the fish. The environment of the land, seas, vegetation on day three, then filled with land animals and people. Now, the pattern is not exactly precise, but it does beg reflection to notice the order and the care of God in his creation the order and the care of God in his creation. He is the God who brings order out of chaos in a caring, providing way, a home for the fish. Seed-bearing plants ready to feed the animals and the people. 
And I know many of you have good reasons for not eating meat, but this is not your proof text for vegetarianism because God will put meat on the menu in a couple of chapters. Jesus will put pork on the menu. But, but God has prepared this world for his creatures. God's creation is ordered and awesome. And it's actually because of this fact that we can do science. Please don't hear anything that I'm saying this morning as anti-science. The fact that we can do it is because God has made the world the way that he has. So that the speed of light today is the same speed as it was tomorrow, and as far as we can tell, will be the same tomorrow, which actually means that a millimetre, which builders bank on being the same today and tomorrow, will be the same tomorrow. The, the way that we can operate in a world is because it is so ordered. It makes sense of how science speaks of the most amazingly fine-tuned universe. The conditions of life on planet Earth that are so delicately set. Have you seen the, the, the formula, the numbers that talk about if, if just one of those little numbers were different, life on planet Earth would not be possible. If, if Earth spun on just a slightly different angle, it wouldn't be inhabitable. If it was any closer or further away from the sun, it makes sense of what the sciences are exploring and discovering in God's world. And it rules out the idea that the universe exists as the product of random chance. To say that everything is just blind matter fumbling its unguided way towards life as we know it is a defiant attempt to cancel the Creator. We are not the inevitable result of an infinite number of universes. God created and God crafted and He is to be marvelled at because of it. Which leads to the next point. Number three, the goodness of creation. Did you notice in the pattern, the, the refrain, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. It's on every day except one of them. The point here is that God's creation is good. The physical world is good. Now again, that is such a basic and seemingly obvious point to us, we go, of course, so what? But that's because of our context and our culture. Uh, firstly, our context, we live in one of the most beautiful parts of planet Earth, don't we not? The, the beaches and the bush, the clean air. I've never travelled. I don't think I need to. <laughs> Like, it is just so beautifully... I've been to New Zealand, does that count? Over the Dutch. We look around and our community looks like, this is staggering, of course it's good. What are you talking about? Why wouldn't it be? But then, more deeply, we live among a culture that is largely materialistic. That is, holds to, whether they're conscious of this or not, holds to something called materialism, which means... Reality, the extent of reality is the physical. There is no supernatural reality. And so what you see and smell and touch and all the chemicals that fire off and give you certain pleasures, it makes sense to spend your life pursuing as much joy, pleasure from eating good food, from drinking good drink, from 
camping and traveling and renovating and sex and money and possessions, that all makes complete sense because YOLO. You only live once. Of course this is all good. But actually, there are other cultures, even today, and have been through history, that have had a very different view about the physical creation. It's just another of the many things that Western culture takes for granted that has come from this book. See, Eastern spirituality is concerned concerned to escape the desire for the physical in the pursuit of escaping suffering. There's something called Gnosticism, which came on the scene towards the end of the first century and actually touches the New Testament at certain points. We are in 1 John last week. It actually touches the issues that were going on in the church there, where it was believed that the flesh was evil and the spirit was good. The flesh was evil, the spirit was good. And so uh, it, was, it was the goal to escape the ordinariness of the physical, of the flesh, to the higher state of the spiritual which has its roots back into Plato and Greek thought. It's not at all obvious that creation is good, unless you read the Bible and understand where that's come from. A couple of things this means for us. Number one, remember the goodness of creation. Remember that when you marvel at the winter sunsets, haven't they been amazing? Not a single colour out of place in that gradient as it shifts and as it changes. When you marvel at that, remember that God imagined it. God spoke it into being. God saw it first. God declared it good. And so we agree with him. Remember that when you enjoy a swim, a surf, a run, when you have the satisfaction of being exhausted from a day in the garden or a day on the tools, as you look forward to the next camping trip and sitting around the fire and staring up at the night sky, that is the right and proper fitting response to a creation that is good. But we let it be a signpost to the creator. It is not wrong to enjoy things. The problem comes when we pursue hedonism. Uh, when we're consumed by our pleasures, when we live as though the physical is all that matters. But it is not wrong. The creation is good. Another implication of this biblical worldview, again, that can't be taken for granted, is that we can actually make sense of beauty. The Bible makes sense of beauty in a way that other worldviews don't. Let me contrast it with the dominant one of our day. A few years ago, I came across this article on the Sydney Morning Herald website discussing music, a research paper that had come into music. It says, it's a lovely, lovely piece of research, says music psychologist. The results will help scientists understand why humans attach so much value to abstract sequences of sound waves. Music is one of those oddball things, he says, It's not at all clear that it has any sort of survival value. Do you see what's being said there? Music, and by extension beauty, make no sense according to a Darwinian worldview of mere blind forces and natural selection and the survival of the fittest. How do you explain music? 
and art and beauty. But that all makes complete sense according to a biblical worldview. Because among the many purposes of music is simply the fact that God made it. Its purpose is to exist as a good part of God's good creation. And of course, what a great gift that he's, he's given it that we might declare great truths about him. The Christian worldview makes sense of beauty. And like no other, we Christians can appreciate beauty in the creation because we appreciate it in relationship with the maker, with the creator. And so get your artwork submissions into taste. Get along. This is why we do it. Creation is a good gift from God. And we want to marvel at his creation, letting it be a signpost that points to the maker. There's the third point. Here's the fourth point, and they're getting bigger, the high point of creation. As we come to the sixth day of creation, the creation of land, animals, and man, we come to the high point. And we notice a number of things that signal the high point so far, and it's not the animals, but man. Do you notice that this part of the account, it's by far the most dense retelling of a day of God's work. There's a telling indicator. There are more words in it than any other. And we notice that the previously repeated command of let there be, let there be, let there be, and, and it was so, and it was so, changes. Verse 26, then God said, let us, Make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So instead of the command like, uh, let, let the land produce, we now have a, a command that is directed not at another thing, but another who. Who's the who? Who is the us? Who is the our that this command is made to? Well, verse 2 gives us a small hint. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But it won't be until the New Testament that we have a fuller appreciation of who the us is and it is staggering. The one true God who is eternal Father, Son and Spirit. Each member of the Trinity present and involved at creation. The big thing for us here is that man is made in the image of this God. Now, when man is used in verse 26 and 27, which has been a little blurred by the NIV translation, the newer one anyway, because uh, it actually it reads, um, so verse 26, let us make man in our image, is kind of the literal original Hebrew, verse 27, so God created man, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the man of verse 26 and 27 does not have a masculine meaning. It's referring to the kind of creature, uh, distinct from the ones that have come previously, of animals and birds and fish. And so. This kind of creature, this kind of animal, if you want to put it like that, is called man. Now, mankind is, is a right meaning, or what our culture would call humankind. And it's the last verse of 
verse 27, the last part, that defines what this creature, man, is. Male and female, he created them. That is, two distinct sexual persons. The female woman and the male man are both made equally in the image of God. The female woman, the male man, both made equally in the image of God. Now this of course bears on significant issues in our culture today, but we won't go into them now because again we carved out time recently on a night to do that. And so if you'd like to check that out, head to the website. We did a night on gender, identity, sexuality and so on. You can just see how foundational this part of the Bible is to understanding reality. It's interesting to note that in this account, God blesses the unfolding creation on only three of the days. Only three times does God actually bless what he's just made. Verse 22, he blesses the fish and the birds as they're commanded to increase and multiply. Then verse 28, God blesses man and woman as they are given the same command to increase and multiply. But more, do you notice? They are to rule over the fish, the birds, and the living creatures. And so we ask the question, what does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, much has been and could be said about it. The the immediate line drawn in the text is a consequence of it, which is to do something on behalf of God, to rule over the creation. This, again, is such a profoundly important foundational truth about humankind, about man, in that we are incomparable with any other creature, distinct as we bear the image of God. Humans are creatures. We're not demigods or divine spirits. We're not eternal spirits. But we are incomparable with any other creature because God made us in his image, to reflect him, to image him, to rule over the earth on behalf of him. Now again, there's lots of implications that follow from this foundational truth, a big one bearing on the question of our identity. Who are you? Who am I? That that big question, who am I? Who are you? Well, Compared to the vast galaxies, you are like a speck of dust. And the more you look into the wonders of the world that science has discovered, the smaller we feel. A speck of dust. But whilst the heavens might declare the glory of God, they don't bear the image of God like you do. Like every single human being does. Speck though we might feel. You are not just a bunch of chemicals in a bag of skin. What is going on right now is not just chemical reactions firing off in your brain. You have a mind as an image bearer of God. You are not just a clever monkey. You are a woman or you are a man made in the image of this creator God. And therefore, you and every single human being 
is of unmatched value and worth and dignity in all creation. This, again, has been the basis for the last 2,000 years of Western civilization, that the sanctity of human life. This makes sense of why the world is, in our part anyway, the way that it is. But when you cancel the creator, huge implications will follow. When you throw this out, there is no image bearing. We are just another animal. And if you honestly pursue that line of thinking, as some have, people like Peter Singer, you might be aware of him, an Australian world-renowned ethicist, who has famously argued that a chimpanzee should have the same rights as a human being. It makes sense if we're not image bearers. And he will argue that actually a chimpanzee that is healthy and not using up the world's resources like a useless and expensive human being, well, that chimpanzee actually has more rights. And it is the logical conclusion of cancelling the creator the image-bearing status of every single human being. Where is our community sense of people as special come from? The Bible. From God, the maker. We hold human life as sacred because God does. Genesis answers the huge question of identity. Who am I? Well, I'm made in the image of this God. As it does, the big question of purpose. Why are we here? And this falls out of the final point I'll make. And I've stretched language a little, I know, here. We've just looked at the high point, but we actually now come to the highest point of creation. Let me show you what I mean. Chapter 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now the Bible isn't meaning here that God got tired like we do. He was buggered because he just created the universe. That's not what it means. God is not a creature like us. He's not bound to create a time like us. But it is answering one of life's biggest questions. What's the point? Why is all of this here? And in particular, why are you here? Why are we here? What's the point? Well, God is not a workaholic. He doesn't just work for the sake of working. He works in his creation for the sake of sitting back and enjoying his creation. Resting. You'll actually notice that this seventh day breaks the pattern of the others because it doesn't have an end. It doesn't say, and it was morning, it was evening, the seventh day. This seventh day actually endures, and we haven't come to an end, where God has achieved the finished work of his creation, which is to rest and to enjoy all that he has made. But here's where it really connects to our purpose Chase it up later, we don't have time to look it up right now, but this is where the New Testament makes sense of Genesis. And if you were to go to Hebrews chapter 4, it makes clear that this seventh day rest, this Sabbath rest of God, is the rest of relationship with God. It is the rest 
of relationship with this creator God. Knowing God in a relational, personal, real way and being known by him. There is the big purpose of your life. It is not your work, it is not to craft a career, it is not to create a family, it is not to achieve, to impress, to be famous, to be popular. The big purpose of your life is to know the rest of relationship with your God, with your maker. Nothing else will satisfy and nothing else will matter into eternity. There is the big purpose of your life. And this is the massive question that Genesis throws up for us. It's not about the mechanism, and though we'll go there. It is, do you know the purpose for which you were made, which is, do you know your God? The rest of relationship, and so with fresh appreciation and wonder, surely we remember and rehearse that this eternal creator God, almighty, what he has done for us in love to restore the rest of this relationship that we have blown up, that we have broken because of our rebellion, that the eternal son of God, the one that was there and through whom he flung stars into space, he entered into his creation, into the womb of a teenage young woman, into the world that he made through a birth canal, that he would cry and be dependent on breasts of a creature that he made, that he might grow as the perfect image of God, the one who has perfectly obeyed his Father, and that he might go to his death on our behalf to absorb the right judgment for our rebellion, our wrecking of that relationship that he might take it fully and finally upon himself. This is the good news of the gospel, that the God who has finished his creation has finished all the work of his salvation. He's done everything necessary for us to know, again, the purpose for which we were made relationship with him, which is not to try and be a better person, try and be more religious, have the, but actually look to the God who has done it all, the Lord Jesus who has died on our behalf and to entrust ourselves to him. The work of salvation is finished that we might come back into the rest of relationship by the way of forgiveness, of grace, of reaching out to this creator who has come for us. And so the big question that Genesis throws up for every one of us this morning is, do you know this rest? I don't mean, you know, do you feel rested? And if you're a young parent, the answer is no. If you're working hard to pay the bills, the answer is no. If your health is bad, the answer is no. If you've got strife in your life, the answer is no. Do you know the rest beneath the rest? The rest of knowing your God and being known by him. Because if you don't, this is the call, this is the invitation to come back into that from your maker. Do that this morning. Come back to your God, say, God, I want to know you. Forgive me through Jesus. Come to life on Tuesday night. I and the team would love to meet you, discuss this further, ask questions, be a fly on the wall, do something. Do you know the purpose for which you were made? 
And if you do, as so many of us by grace do, how good, how good to to behold our almighty God. Chapter 1 is given to us to to blow our minds about the bigness of God. It's trying to, with words, like show the cosmic massiveness of him. Chapter 2 is now going to zoom in and show the special relationship with his creatures. But this almighty God, he is your father through Jesus. He is the God who does bring order out of chaos. And so trust him in the chaos of your life, that his promises of firm are true. He is not done, he is working. Behold your God. I want to give us a moment right now to reflect on what we've heard to do that as the band comes up and will lead us in song with music, a great gift of God to do that. Take a moment.